Hi, and welcome to my podcast series, The New Abnormal. I'm Sean P. Lodishenesi, researcher, author, and speaker from Brand Positive. As a researcher, I've spent 20 years conducting ethnographic interviews on global projects. Along the way, I've been lucky enough to have met some amazing people, from psychologists to activists to creatives, some of whom I'll be talking to in this series. I'm also the author of The Post-Truth Business, which focused on trust, empathy, and privacy, while my second book, Influences and Revolutionaries, looked into innovation, behavioural change, and the climate crisis. So, I hope you enjoy the interviews, and if so, please tell your friends, leave a rating, and watch out for our other episodes. Now, without further delay, let's crack on with today's podcast. So today I'm really pleased to be joined by an incredibly interesting individual, Thierry Mallory, the joint founder and managing partner at Monthly Barometer and Summit of Minds. Monthly Barometer, it's an eponymous flagship monthly predictive newsletter, which is Thierry's brainchild and the product of his innovative and exacting approach to research and analysis. Thierry possesses decades of unique professional experience spanning investment banking, an economist at EBRD in London, think tanks and academia in the US and UK, and government, including a three-year spell in the Prime Minister's office in Paris. At the World Economic Forum in Switzerland, Thierry founded and headed the Global Risk Network and led the programme team for the annual meeting at Davos. In 2015, Thierry also founded the Summit of Minds, a series of high-level meetings that combine hard thinking on major macro issues and the importance of personal well-being and the power of nature. To that, all I can say is, wow. So, Thierry, hi, and uh, how are you? Hello, Sean. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> good, good. I had to ask about that, Thierry. So, by the way, uh, where are you today? I'm in Chamonix, uh, Chamonix-Mont-Blanc, which is a mountain resort in, in the French Alps near Geneva, and which is my, my home base. Lucky you, I'm in a rather sort of a grey, although it always has to be said, fantastic Brighton by the sea. Now, Thierry, there's a ton of things we can go through because you're such a prolific thinker and writer and activist and all the rest of it. But I thought it'd be really interesting just first of all, um, if you could take us through the monthly barometer, the, as they put, the inch deep, mile wide, uh, predictive and analytical monthly newsletter that you put out to great acclaim. So uh, if, if you could talk us through that, your approach to it, etc., and some of the issues you've been looking into recently, that would right. be fantastic. Okay. Okay. Thank you, Sean. Uh, the monthly barometer, the idea came to me um, through someone I met um, at the World Economic Forum, a global CEO. And before I left, just when I left the forum, in fact, in 2006, I believe, um, I participated in, um, at that time it was called the IBC International Business Council meeting of the World Economic Forum. And it was an incredibly interesting gathering of 100 uh, global CEOs from all over the world who met um, once a quarter or once every six months, I can't remember, um, without an agenda. And um, they met for one day in Geneva at the World Economic Forum and they spoke. And at that time I was... Um, privileged enough to be the, the person uh, taking taking the notes. So I listened to what was being said in the room. And during the coffee break, um, I was discussing with one of our members, um, the, the CEO of a very large global um, food and beverage company. 
And I said, what is it that we could do for you that we don't do at the moment? And he said something which um, struck me um, as very insightful at that time. Uh, He said, well, as a global CEO, I have very little time to think. I'm bombarded with information, notes, reports, analysis from, from all over the world, from my business colleagues, from people who consult for the company, from uh, foundations, uh, universities, etc. And I find it incredibly difficult to dissociate uh, the signal from the noise, first of all. And also very difficult for me to get um, an unbiased um, take on what's happening in the world because it comes from my, it's being filtered by my colleagues. So if you could do a one-pager that in just a four or four or five minute read a month gives me a sense of what's going on and how the big issues are likely to evolve, I would find it incredibly useful. And that's how the idea came to me. So you know, the good ideas are all, almost always second-hand ideas. Um, uh, I find it interesting. And um, I left the forum and went for it and set up my own company. And this is what I've been doing for the past 15 years. Fantastic. And I love the way that you describe it as uh, you know, the, the monthly barometer being a high-level network characterized by diversity. And perhaps you can just talk a bit about that in terms of the different uh, types of diversity that you're interested in. Well, absolutely. If you want to grasp um, what's going on in terms of macro issues and the template, the, fr- the framework, conceptual framework, which is very simple that I use, is to think about the world the big world, the big world out there, based on five macro categories, which are one, economics, two, geopolitics, three, society, four, the environment, and five, tech. And um, if you look at these um, and the way in which they conflate with each other, you are likely to have a good grasp of what's happening in the world and how it's likely to evolve. Uh, But the way we do it is uh, very, very, very often um, biased, first of all. You know, if you are in the UK or in France or in the US, you would have a Western view of the world, um, which is, as as we we all know, a very limited view of the world. And similarly, if you rely on the advice on uh, economists or political scientists or ecologists or whoever that may be, you would have a very silo-driven approach. You will look at your own little silo, but you will not understand the way in which it it is interconnected with other issues. Um, The way, for example, in which environmental issues, global warming or water scarcity is going to have an impact on geopolitical relations or on inflation. And uh, we do this because that's how we are educated. We go to university or to high school and... uh, we specialize in one field, and it's incredibly difficult once you do that to escape these um, narrow silos and to to discuss with people who have a different approach or a different opinion. And uh, from a macro perspective, uh, there are very few people capable of doing what um, Warren Buffett does for investment. Warren Buffett always recommends that when you have an investment conviction, you should do your utmost to talk to people who have a different conviction. Uh, test your the strengths of your opinion and conviction. And um, there are a few investors who do it very successfully um, in the field. But in macro terms, um, uh, we, we rarely do that. Um, we don't very often. So what I strive to do in my daily 
life is to talk to people who have a different opinion. And in order to be able to do that, you need to talk to experts, to policymakers, to opinion makers um, who are different from you. Um, so diversity of opinion, of background, of origin um, is absolutely uh, essential if you want to be able to achieve that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that, and you also talk about um, the tool that you mentioned is sort of conceived by the US intelligence community from the point of view of uh, competing hypotheses. Absolutely. So I use a methodology called um, the analysis of competing hypotheses, which um, consists in something which is very simple again. Um, there is you know, no, no mystery about how to do this. When you form um, a, a conviction, uh, or when you try to make your own mind about something macro, for example, are we going to have more or less inflation? Uh, are we going to have a war in Taiwan or not? You do two columns and you put uh, in the left column the opinion of people who are going who, who assert that uh, yes, we'll have a war with Taiwan between Taiwan and China, and on the right hand column you do the opposite. And then you monitor the way in which these opinions evolve. And when you do that, and when you, when you measure the way in which um, um, you know, assertions, um, opinions, convictions um, yeah. are corroborated by facts or not, it becomes much easier to, to, to get it right. You don't get it right all the time, but it's much more robust than coming up with a very strong opinionated um, um, understanding comprehension of something and um, refusing to be dislodged by anything, any fact that might um, compromise your initial conviction. Um, and very often when you look at the pundits and the big names, and that's how, in fact, they, they, you know, they, they promote the views. Uh, they have very, very strong opinions. Um, but changing changing your mind is something which is quintessentially important, and uh, it requires a great deal of humility. And very often, people with strong views are not humble enough to change their mind. Absolutely, and then also to finish that element off in terms of, of your uh, links with or uh, ethos regarding the, uh, as you term it, the Hollywood business model. Yes, yes. So the Hollywood business model, um, it's again something which is. Uh, I think incredibly um, uh, useful and um, productive as a as a means of um, producing um, interesting outcomes for clients. That the way that the way I do things. We're a small organization. I have just um, nine colleagues, but we have a very broad network of people who um, um, who consume the monthly barometer, um, either on the supply side, um, academics, opinion makers, media leaders. Or on the demand side, the CEOs, investors, um, so people who use um, our views for their uh, daily decisions. And um, if someone comes to me um, asking me, oh, by the way, what do you think is going to be um, the outcome of the um, war in um, eastern Ukraine at the moment? Uh, well, you know, I have my strong views on that, but they're totally irrelevant. However, I'm capable of assembling a team of very diverse opinions, Russians, Westerners, people from different backgrounds. And this is what constitutes the Hollywood business model. It's, it, it's derived from this, the way in which uh, Hollywood uh, produces movies. When you do something in Hollywood, there is this image of um, excellence. 
um, around what Hollywood does. So not only you will try when you do a, a movie to 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 hire the best uh, actresses, actors, and um, produce, etc., but also the best carpenter, the best uh, light expert, uh, so on and so forth. So when you are small, when you are nimble, when you can move fast, and when you have a broad network, you can do that. You can apply the Hollywood business model to your um, daily life, uh, professional life. And this is what I try to do by assembling very diverse opinions. Um, and we work um, you know, harmoniously for the duration of the mandate for a client. And it delivers very good results. Absolutely fascinating. And, and, and then also had mentioned one other uh, thing that I thought was really, really interesting uh, in terms of your, your approach and overall ethos, because on one side, one might be uh, uh, presumed that you are, and that you do spend you know, a vast amount of time talking with uh, the, the leaders of really, really fascinating organizations on both the sort of you know, political and uh, sort of organizational stroke business stages. But I think one of the really interesting points you put forward in real detail about your approach is with regards to going for a walk. Let's just talk about that. I thought it was amazing when you say that, you know, almost any walk rewards us with an idea, a thought or an inspiration. When we walk, we depart and we arrive. So, yeah, perhaps just unpack um, precisely why it is that you have uh, such a strong view yes. well, It's so useful. Well, I I, um, I have a passion for the mountains, um, for, for climbing, for ski touring, for walking, for whatever we can do the mountains. And in my previous professional life, I lived in New York, I lived in London, I lived in Moscow, in Paris. So in places where nature is a very distant reality, uh, the awesome power of nature. Uh, you have parks, you have gardens. In London, you have fantastic gardens, but uh, it's limited nature. And um, and um, I, I noticed when I was living in these places that I was always uh, more open to ideas, more productive when I was walking around. Um, um, so in London, I worked in the city for, for many years. And uh, when I had an important call, I, 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 I went around. I went around Liverpool Street Station with my phone and uh, I found it more productive. Uh, so that prompted me to think about the importance of walking, which is something that we all do naturally. And uh, I started to take an interest in the issue, and I started to talk to doctors, to psychologists, to neuroscientists, to people who study movement, and um, they made me uh, understand the, the very critical importance of, of walking um, in terms of um, cognitive, physical capabilities, mental capabilities. So I wrote a book um, um, six or seven years ago called 10 Good Reasons to Go for Walk, and uh, uh, and then the more I, um, I, I wrote about, uh, so I gave many interviews about the importance of walking, etc. And then I thought, well, in fact, I could make it my, my uh, working model. Uh, why do I have to sit behind a desk to, 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 to work? Uh, I could do this outside. So in fact, now uh, I'm based in Chamonix in these um, awesome uh, mountains um, in, the, in the French Alps. And um, I think I spend more than half of my time uh, working while walking. Um, uh, and, uh, of course, I'm very lucky to be doing a job that doesn't require me to be in a factory or behind a desk. And uh, I can afford to do that because I, 
I talk to people, I think, and I write. And uh, you can even write while while walking. You just dictate to your to your to your mobile phone. So I do this, and um, uh, I realize that the more I do this, the more creative I become, the more open to ideas I become, uh, the more capable I am of um, uh, integrating into my mental models um, dissenting ideas. Um, you are more open to divergence when you are outside. And again, all this is um, proven by um, research in uh, neuroscience, in psychology. I'm not you know, mentioning anything new here. Um, and um, um, I, I made it, I made it a, a business model. I developed an idea called um, workshop, workshop, not workshop, workshop. So, for example, some yeah. of mine's. Um, we take 300 people outside. We take them, um, you know, on a glacier, for example, with crampons, with with ropes, with mountain guides, of course. And instead of having a very dry conversation about climate change and water scarcity and the way in which uh, global warming is affecting um, glaciology, for example, um, in the basement of a of a hotel somewhere, uh, we do it on the glacier itself, and it's much much more productive than it would otherwise be the case. So walking is good for us. Fantastic. Okay, talking about the summit of, of minds, etc. Uh, perhaps we can just move on to uh, the World Economic Forum, and then we'll go through the specific issues around a couple of uh, the recent superb publications, the Great uh, Narrative, and obviously prior to that, uh, the Great Reset. Um, so, um, from the point of view of the World Economic Forum, uh, and as they say, for anyone out there, I can't believe anyone does uh, or is unfamiliar with it. But just in case, so international organisation for public-private cooperation, which engages the foremost political business, cultural and other leaders of society to shape global, regional and industry agendas. But just give us a, a, your viewpoint on with, uh, the World Economic Forum. Uh, what have been some of the, the big thoughts that have been coming out of it? It's difficult for me to make a pronouncement on the World Economic Forum because I left the organization, even though I have written several books with, with Klaus Schwab and I, I went to Davos uh, in May and uh, I'm still uh, somehow associated with the forum. But um, you know, there are many old sort of things being said about the, the World Economic Forum, but it's essentially a brokerage for ideas and projects. That's what it is. Klaus uh, Schwab has been incredibly successful at building an organization that uh, gathers people um, from different walks of life. Um, so he understood that, I think, before anybody else, the importance of um, you know, diversity. Um uh, you go to Davos and uh, uh, you meet, um, of course, many global CEOs because that's um, the essence of the organization. But you also meet activists, you meet artists, you meet media leaders, um, thinkers, um, academics, uh, people doing research in biotech, in economics, in anthropology, in medicine. So it's a, it's a, it's an incredible um, assemblage. Uh, of um, of people from all walks of life, and um, diversity creates um, um, richness and, and wealth of ideas, of opinions, and uh, that's it. I think that's what it is. Uh, I, I'm sure that many people would disagree with me and uh, would engage into you know, conspirational ideas about decisions being made in Davos or elsewhere. Um, but that's not what I see. I think it's just um, a great platform for meeting interesting people and uh, exchanging ideas and uh, moving the agenda forward on some specific issues. Yeah, yeah. 
have to say, just uh, <laughs> talking about sort of a, a other ideas, I thought it was a very funny piece in the Financial Times recently, um, uh, talking about it and being sort of deliberately facetious, saying, you know, yes. the second year, the World Economic Forum meetings in the Swiss mountain resort of Davos have been cancelled. Wait, not cancelled, worse, Davos has gone online. All the speeches from world leaders, none of the parties with Matt Damon. <laughs> the horror. Nobody became a billionaire to watch a webinar of Ursula von Leyen. We conclude, things were bad in 2019 when Donald Trump didn't show up. They were even worse the next time when he did. <laughs> Absolutely superb. But um, but they, but but you know, but on a an entirely serious note, though, um, and you know, couldn't be more serious. I thought it was incredible when you know we cast our minds back to the early months of 2000 when um, the, you know like the, the global nightmare of, uh, of COVID-19 um, it hit us at, at different stages depending on where we were in, in sort of different locations around the planet and very swiftly. Uh, the book The Great Reset came out via a Klaus Schwab and yourself, uh, and to great acclaim. Uh, I thought it was absolutely superb uh, publication, and obviously the, the amount of sort of thinking that went into it. Uh, just to give a couple of quotes from it, as you said in there, you know, societies could be poised to become either more egalitarian or more authoritarian, or geared towards more solidarity, or indeed more individualism favouring the interests of the few or the many. Uh, economies, when they recover, could take the path of more inclusivity and be more attuned to the needs of our global commons, or they could return to functioning as they did before. Uh, I think, again, just again, one other quote of the many I'll, I'll take from there, uh, as almost as you concluded, we're now at a crossroads. One path will take us to a better world, more inclusive, more equitable, more respectful of Mother Nature, the other will take us to a world that resembles the one we just left behind, but worse and constantly dogged by nasty surprises. We therefore must get it right. So, Thierry, are we getting it right? I don't know yet. Um, <laughs> it doesn't yeah. sound like it at the moment. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm engaged in this exercise at the moment. I'm rereading the book and the two books and trying to to get a sense of what we got right and what we got wrong um well there are many reasons to be worried and uh, of course if you take the five big macro categories that i was mentioning at the beginning of our conversation none of them none of them is going to the right direction with maybe one exception which is technology uh, but technology um, technology is progressing at, a, at an incredibly at an incredible pace, very, very fast. It's exponential growth in terms of, um, of innovation. And um, it could well give rise to a dystopian world or an utopian world. We, we don't know yet. And, uh, hopefully something in, in, in the middle. Um, and of course, the risks, all these macro risks, um, and this is very often what we fail to understand, exacerbate each other. They are deeply interconnected. They are um, the, the, the conflate with each other, and um, you know we, we we see it at the moment with with global warming. We had this most incredible um, summer in terms of um, heat waves everywhere: China, India, Africa, Europe, Latin America, Northern America, everywhere. And um, uh, so it's it's uh, it's just more than climate change. You can see the effect this is having on economics, for example, through um, um, inflation, you know, energy price inflation. 
the effect this is having on um, geopolitical issues and uh, with you know water scarcity becoming a very very hot geopolitical contentious issue and societal etc cetera, etc cetera. it's it's um, exacerbating social inequalities for example through um, energy price inflation so we we are not we are not going to the right um, direction. Um, there are many many good reasons I think to be worried about what's coming, um, but um, and this is what we explore in the in the more more, more recent book, the great narrative, um, and also something that is um, dear to your heart with uh, this new abnormal ethos: the importance of hope, um, hope, community, and resilience. Uh, hope um, we have. Uh, I think a moral obligation to be optimistic about the future because if you have no hope, there is no future, and um, without hope, we cannot live. It's as simple as that. And um, m- my hope um, lies um, in the um, attitudes of the younger generation. I, I make a distinct effort to to talk to uh, very young people as much as I can, to to my children, to the friend of my children, to people whom I don't know but who are young and uh, i think there is a surge of um, political and social activism in, in the making and um, uh, hopefully this will this is what will address the um, um, global big global issues that beset us um, the environment the social inequalities being the two most important ones um yes. so our, our hope understandably um, lies with the younger generation yeah. Could, could I ask you just uh, with your uh, very, obviously, sort of, a, to put it mildly, very learned uh, economist hat on, I mean, from the point of view of, as understood at the time, you know, the three basic objectives of the Great Reset, as in stakeholder capitalism, um, the construction of a more resilient, equitable and sustainable system with regards to all things ESG, and then harvesting innovations innate to the fourth industrial revolution. There was a very interesting um, issue of The Economist about a month ago, uh, which I'm sure, of course, you read, um, that talked about ESG and said, actually, um, we're going down the wrong path from the point of view of ESG, because as understood that they're saying there's so much about it that has been uh, unclear and indeed deliberately opaque and has been effectively misused. And the economists proposed that ESG should be boiled down to one simple measure, emissions. Yes, yes. I read, that. I read this piece like you did. Um, it's something which is very big, of course, at the moment. It's um, it's so much at the forefront of um, you know what the um, what the financial community is is thinking about. Um, well, of course, as you just said, um, ESG is um, is, um, is beset by measurement problems. Um, we don't know yeah. how to measure it. Um, there is no um, there are no global standards, and um, and there is a phenomenal amount of greenwashing. Um, yeah, companies. yeah using ESG for the wrong purpose, uh, using it but not meaning it, not um, walking uh, the talk. Um, so the, um, uh, the the economist suggests that we only retain the uh, E, um, uh, which which makes eminent sense. But again, um, you know, I, I don't think it's efficient because... Uh, as we argue in the book, the two biggest problems we collectively face at the moment are the environment, environmental degradation, nature and climate change are the two sides of the same coin, biodiversity and climate change. 
uh, and it's an existential threat. Uh, there is no doubt about this. And the other one is uh, inequalities, um, which is um, destroying um, our very social fabric. So f- for us, uh, for Klaus Schwab and I, and of course many other people, uh, these are the two main uh, issues that we have to deal with. Um, so I understand the point um, as far as investment are concerned to focus on, on, on E and carbon emissions because we, we need to curb them by whatever means um, are available. Um, but um, as um, you know, society, uh, inequality, uh, and, and gee, the, the governance and the way in which uh, companies uh, choose um, the way in which they operate, whether they want to be stakeholders-driven uh, or shareholder-driven, is absolutely fundamental. And in fact, you realize that E, S, and G cannot be really um, dissociated from each other. And again, my hope uh, when I talk to young entrepreneurs, um, which I do all the time, people who are launching startups, etc., um, I realize that um, every single one of them matters. So, of course, ESG is inadequate as an instrument. It's too blunt and uh, um, it can be corrupted, um, as it is so often the case. Uh, but um, when I talk to people who are you know, 30, 25, 30, or launching their own business or, or working for, for large companies. Um, they want to deal with every one of them. Um, so it's going to take a while before we come up with common standards. But I think that in the end, uh, even if we decide to focus first on E, in the end, the three will be um, indissociable. Yeah, yeah. Very, very interesting. Thank you. Um, okay, and then... Moving up to where we are now uh, from the point of view of the latest publication, a copy of which I have in front of me as we speak, and I've been reading it with a great deal of interest. Um, So the great narrative for a better future. Right. Tell us about that, please. So um, the great narrative is is a sequel um, of of The Great Reset, and uh, we wanted to... Uh, well, first of all, emphasize the importance of narratives uh, because very often uh, we fail to understand how powerful narratives can be. And, uh, uh, you know, you can have all sorts of solutions at your disposal, but if you don't know how to frame them, if they are too dry or too uh, impersonal, if you don't connect with them, um, you won't go anywhere. So narratives are absolutely fundamental. Uh, also because narratives can be... Uh, used for uh, nefarious purposes. You you can have bad narratives about things, um, and we know where to look for for that. Um, So the great narrative, um, we wanted to present um, uh, ideas and solutions to address the big problems that we uh, collectively face, the big global risk, primarily climate change and inequalities, but not only that, um, also the way in which technologies have to be governed, etc., and um, uh, you know, the, the world is awash with good ideas. There is an abundance of uh, suggestions, ideas, policy proposals in terms of how to go forward. And it's very, very, very difficult to, to sort them out. Uh, there are so many of them. So we yeah. had this um, um, simple, well, first of all, there was the resources of the World Economic Forum that, you know, as you said at the beginning, does so much in terms of private-public partnerships. So there are many ideas out there that are being moved forward um, um, around and by the World Economic Forum. But the idea that we had was to interview uh, 50 very prominent thinkers and um, 
here what they have to tell us about um, the, the way forward. You know, how does this the geopolitical landscape evolve in talking to prominent uh, Chinese and um, Westerners um, in the field of international relations, for example, or how to put into place a system of global governance that can work and will be effective, um, all sort of ideas around climate change. Uh, well, I talk to, I'm ignorant about uh, tech and science because it's not my field and uh, it's very hard to understand what's going on. I talk to people like Jennifer Dudna, who created the, um, um, you know, uh, mRNA um, technology. Uh, and, yeah. and then it makes you realize the speed at which possible good solutions could be implemented because there is so much going on. So we wanted to 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 present some of these ideas and um, um, shed light on, um, on the positive way uh, forward and also um, interview, um, interview people who are um, authors or, or philosophers because um, you know, there is a great deal of, um, of um, uh, wisdom um, yep. in these uh, two domains. And, um, for example, it is through the book that uh, I understood by talking to philosophers why it is a moral obligation to be optimistic. I hadn't thought about it before. Well, it's a moral obligation. I'm, I'm now convinced of that uh, because otherwise um, you don't act upon your convictions and you don't try to find a way forward. Um, so that was this idea behind the book. And um, um, it's really a platform to engage people around... Um, optimistic solutions for the problems, for the macro problems we, we face and try to get a sense of how things are going to evolve. In terms of uh, philosophy, it's absolutely uh, fascinating, that point about our moral duty to be optimistic, uh, as put by the wonderful Karl Popper. So uh, one of those. But um, could I just ask, and by the way, in terms of uh, perceptions, I mean, I thought it was fascinating, again, one of the many quotes, and perhaps what I'll do now is I'll, I'll just uh, even like, I'll throw a few of your quotes uh, back at you to, to sort of bring to life. But I mean, as you put it in the book, you know, narratives shape our perceptions, which in turn form our realities yeah. and end up influencing our choices and actions i think it was you know i say kant that said you know we bring about powerful change by altering perception uh, combining reason and empiricism as a person like nietzsche that would have said you know real values about what we can dare to become so that i thought was fascinating the point you mentioned in the book about you know so the grand narrative is a hybrid between an essay a manifesto and a light academic precy you know a collection of narratives that explore what's coming and what to do about it. Um, just so, so perhaps just a few of the things I could ask you to sort of uh, to uh, go into in more detail. So, um, okay, to start somewhere, um, one of the points you make is uh, that of interdependence, you know, the byproduct of tech progress and globalization. Perhaps you need to just um, unpack that for us in terms of what uh, your viewpoints are around interdependence and why it is so important. Yeah, well, interdependence is something that we started to talk about seriously, um, I think in the early 2000, maybe, um, when we realized that um, um, two things, globalization, first of all, and technological progress, second, were uh, were sparring um, this idea of interdependence. I mean, we, we live in a world that is totally, totally, totally interdependent in a way that we find sometimes difficult to... To, 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 to grasp. And uh, um, I, I recall a comment made in Davos, uh, I think it's the, in the early 2000, by um, 
uh, um, a thinker, a global thinker from Singapore called Kishore Mabubani. And um, he said, if you want to understand the world in which we live today, uh, a few decades ago, we there were, um, you know, 50 boats um, at sea, um, well, or 130 or whatever, as many countries as we have in the world. And today, there is one boat and uh, with 150 cabins on it. So, you know, our fate is totally interconnected. Our fate as a country, as a community, as a society is totally interconnected with the fate of um, other countries. Um, that's what independence um, uh, means. And um, what we didn't grasp at that time, we saw that interdependence would lead to even further globalization, that there'd be harmony everywhere, that would trade with each other, that uh, trade would prevent conflicts before we have you know, uh, an economic incentive to not to destroy um, the way in which we trade with each other. And yet, it's the opposite that's happening. The more we move forward, the more polarized, the more fragmented, the more retrenchment um, there is. Um, so I don't have a solution. And, uh, uh, you know, we explore in the book some, some of the reasons um, that explain why this is happening. And uh, when you turn to uh, economists or social scientists or political scientists, you get a different interpretation of this, um, of the reasons that underpin this um, counter trend, uh, because we are certainly facing a retreat of globalization, not the end of globalization, because you cannot bring it to an end. It's impossible. We are too, we are too interdependent for, for anybody to be able to do that. However, there is a very distinct retrenchment from, from globalization um, in a world in which we are totally, totally, totally interdependent because all the global issues that we collectively face are dependent upon our ability to act together. You know, we are not going to solve climate change um, in isolation from each other. Uh, we're not going to solve um, monetary policies, coordination um, in isolation from each other, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so we are um, globalized, we are interdependent, uh, but we find it very difficult to deal with uh, with this issue as we, as we retrench and fragment. Yeah, yeah. I thought also really, really interesting in the book the way that you outline, um, you know, the point you make about you know the fact that uh, we live on the brink of major consequential changes, uh, and to cite some of the most major, you know, unsustainable economic growth, geopolitical rivalries, environmental degradation, inequalities, pandemics, and cyber crimes, and a couple of the key points that you then go on to talk about the fact that. The issue we're now uh, confronted with is that these are taking place simultaneously where the risks are, as you put it, concertinaed. Yeah, exactly. Well, um, that's one of the key um, arguments we make in the book. Uh, when you look at these five macro categories, um, um, as I said at the beginning, each of them is evolving in a direction that is um, a cause of concern. You know, economics, politics, etc. However, if it were the case for just one of them, um, to the exclusion of the others, it would be fine. If we had to deal with geopolitical turmoil in an environment with no 
environmental problem um, with um, sustainable growth, with um, no major political or societal issues. Fine, we would concentrate on geopolitical turmoil. But it's not what's happening at the moment. Uh, each of them is evolving um, in a negative fashion and conflating with the others and therefore exacerbating the effect, the negative effect, the negative impact of the others. And this is yeah. what makes it so so difficult for, for, for policymakers to, 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 to deal with. And uh, I, I think we quote in the book, um, in the Great Reset, I had the, you know, the good fortune of talking to many uh, prominent people, people who make very important decisions, uh, head of state, global CEOs, and, yep. the, and the president, the president of a country, um, uh, told me, um, you know, we have to, to project this image of uh, confidence and um, assertiveness, but in reality, we are overwhelmed by the complexity of the world. Wow, that's um, yeah. sovereign. That's a very sovereign thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Moving on, another couple of points that I put to you that I thought were fascinating: um, it, the culture of a of, as you put it, immediacy, which is caused by technological advances and globalization, which has created a society that is constantly pressed for time, um, linked with the rise in velocity, explained by digital connectivity and tech. So we're all being subjected to constant but discontinuous rapid change. As you put it in the book, I thought you put it so well here, velocity is everywhere and it's hard to grasp. We often underestimate it by a factor of 10. Yeah, absolutely. I think we can, all of us can confess that we are um, confronted with this issue of velocity in a way that we can't um, really master. Um, you know, if you are in the financial market, it's uh, quarterly results, um, this obsession with quarterly results that prompts you to to be focused on the very short term. Um, if you are uh, someone like you or me, we do the same job pretty much. Uh, you have to contend with hundreds of emails every day. Uh, you, you you have too many things to to to, to do, and um, I find it a very interesting trend because um, we are engulfed by this uh, velocity and uh, acceleration of time, which um, which in turn makes time an extremely scarce and variable resource. You know, the, yep. the, the most powerful people on earth today are those who have time to think and time to get um, still to to um, to maybe to do nothing just to ponder what matters to you and uh, when i was writing the book and um, and also in my daily conversations with um, with um, you know, my 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 community subscribers to the monthly barometer it strikes me that the people whom um, i i admire are people who are capable of taking time to think. And I was talking the other day to the CEO of a very important American company, a global company with, I think, 300,000 employees. So he's a busy CEO. And every CEO at the moment would tell you, I don't have time. And in his case, he said, I don't have time. So I start every day by reading for three hours, not reading my company reports or what my colleagues send me, reading articles, reading books, reading novels, because that's how you form your understanding about the world. And um, and so we had, a, we had a long conversation about that. And uh, uh, I said, but how does that translate into 
uh, into business decisions that you have to make on a, on a daily basis. And he said, well, at the beginning of the pandemic, because I read so much you know, in the press and I read the op-eds in the New York Times, and et cetera, I read a book, I, I read an article, an op-ed from a virologist um, who, who said, well, the pandemic could be with us for years and years and years and years. So he made uh, business decisions accordingly. Uh, you know, while everybody was saying in the US at that time, in the beginning of you know, February, March, April 2020, it's going to last for four, five, six months and then it will be behind us or forgotten, etc. He made the contrarian decision to assume that the pandemic would be with us for three, four, five years, which at that time was very counterintuitive and, uh, and a contrarian opinion. Well, simply because he could take three hours every day to read. I find it great. And similarly, he's someone who goes on a walk for an hour a day just to refresh his mental capabilities. So I think, um, you know, I think finding time uh, is important. And, um, uh, you know, 10 years ago, not having enough time was um, perceived as, as a virtue. Oh, I'm too busy and I'm so overwhelmed and I'm doing so much stuff, etc. cetera. Um, yep. So it was perceived as being something very important in life. I don't have time, therefore I am important. Well, today, um, I think it's the uh, opposite, which is true. If you are very influential, very uh, important socially or in terms of your profession, uh, being um, able to pay attention to what matters, standing still is the most important thing, the one that truly matters to you. Very interesting, and that point about you know, um, thinking about what really matters and uh, and, tr- and trying to refresh our thinking. I think, I mean, I come back to philosophy. The great Karl Popper again uh, talked about yeah. you know, things like you know, don't think in terms of certainties. Re- always replace current thinking with new thinking. You know, absolutely, is, pro- is criticism is uh, is progress. Um, again, just as we begin to uh, finish off, I think we're about ten minutes left, and it's been so interesting talking with you, Thierry. Um, Thank you. Again, perhaps you talk about this really fascinating um, uh, point just to carry on from where we were just now. As you put it, the pandemic uh, prompted us to rethink the role of morality and values in our lives. So perhaps let's talk about, a bit about that in terms of, because you also talk about the lack of a common value system as a barrier. So, um, yeah, perhaps just to unpack your thinking there. Well, it's may, it may be something that we get um, we got wrong. Um, in the book, uh, even though um, you know, um, only history will tell, um, uh, it's been only two years um, since the pandemic, well, two years and a bit uh, since the pandemic started. But uh, when we wrote the book, we um, were convinced that um, the pandemic would prompt us to uh, to reconsider uh, our social contract and uh, yep. notably um, the way in which the people whose contribution to our economic and social life was vital um, were not being recognized socially nor financially. You know, the people, um, you remember, we all clapped uh, the doctors, the nurses, um, the yep. people, and we said how fantastic they are and how great and uh, how phenomenal, how courageous. Well, it's all forgotten. Nothing has happened. Um, I, I, well, wrongly, I had made the assumption that um, um, the social contract would be um, rewritten in a way that would acknowledge uh, the contribution that these people make to our social welfare. Yeah. And uh, I 
you know, I just find it astonishing that, um, at least in Europe, it's certainly the case in the UK, it's also the case in France, there is a an incredible disconnect between the remuneration of um, nurses and, and and even doctors compared to what um, a hedge fund manager, for example, or um, yeah. an executive assistant in a major investment firm would would make. And uh, so that doesn't reflect um, the um, contribution to our social welfare. Um, and you could argue that uh, these people make a very useful social contribution to, contribution to our social welfare, whereby uh, it's certainly less for a hedge fund manager. He makes a huge contribution to himself um, in terms of economic welfare, but it's a contribution yeah. to social welfare is more limited. So uh, yeah, yeah. we saw that it would change because we saw that um, inequality, uh, inequality of income, inequality of uh, in terms of education, of, uh, of outcome, of, uh, um, of chances in academia, in um, uh, life. Um, would be would be corrected um, because it had reached levels that are deemed as unsustainable, but um, it hasn't happened yet. Um, and um, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what's coming. I don't know whether um, the changes that are needed will take a, a very brutal, violent form, as it's been the case throughout history, or whether we'll be capable of um, coming up to you know to with solutions, arrangements that um, address this very fundamental problem of um, of inequity. Yeah. But I thought it's fascinating how you put it in the book. In the, we must ask a range of philosophical questions, such as how we should balance individual liberty versus social prosperity versus the need of the climate and environment. We must also ask normative questions about what needs to be done about it and how we can balance those values against more familiar values of prosperity and human autonomy. Yeah, well, yes, and uh, this touches upon the issue of um, uh, social norms, which are very yep. country-dependent and culture-dependent, and um, the pandemic has made it incredibly clear that um, if you live in the US or if you live in China or in Malaysia or in Europe, we don't you don't have the the same understanding of um, uh, where these values um, yeah. um, lie. Um, you know, in some regions, countries, cultures, the um, individual um, is above everything else. And in some other regions and cultures, um, the community is the entity that stands above everything else um, with the necessary trade-offs. Um, so it's very interesting to see how this is likely, this is going to evolve in the in the coming years, because of course we tend to think about the post-pandemic era um, as a you know one one-shot change, but of course it's going to unfold over many many years, as in the case with the uh, previous uh, pandemics, uh, the Great Plague, etc. The changes um, took place over generations. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating. And just to finish that point about value systems, again, I thought it was very interesting the way you put it again in the book. There's very little chance of Chinese leaders, for instance, abandoning their value system to become more like the Americans, just as there's very little chance of American leaders abandoning theirs to become more like the Chinese. Um, so one of those. But just to I say, to begin to finish off um, uh, on a uh, on a positive note, uh, I, I was, you know, <laughs> 
very positive and very pleased to read again some of the points you made there, which you alluded to earlier on about the world of hope and optimism. When you said, you know, you're optimistic about humanity's innate human flexibility, adaptability and ingenuity. You're also optimistic about the speed of innovation and the role of technology that you believe those two things will solve the world's problems. Hopefully, yes. Hopefully, yes. One of the big insights um, that I got during this um, um, second book, the writing, is interviews I had with um, social anthropologists in particular, who made me understand something which uh, was which I, I grasped intuitively, but I hadn't understood the science behind it. We are pro-social animals. No, we. Very often we are depicted um, uh, in movies, in books, as uh, selfish, as uh, tyrants in, within our communities, within uh, our uh, social environments. But in reality, we are profoundly social animals uh, willing to sustain each other, to help each other. And this is a great um, reason for hope. And um, for example, in the book, something that we um, explore en passant is this um, stuff about empathy. Empathy is being taught in Nordic schools, particularly in Finland, with tremendous results because it started 20 years ago and now there's the first um, robust social studies conducted about how this translates into pro-social behavior um, when you are 40, 50. And um, it pays off immensely. You know, uh, teaching empathy in schools uh, makes you a better human being later on. Why don't we do this more? It costs nothing. You know, why don't we have empathy courses uh, around the world in schools? So there are very simple solutions that we have at our disposal and that uh, we don't implement yet. And this is um, hopefully something that we sorted as we move forward, as we um, face more problems, we'll be um, looking for more solutions. And the solutions, we have them at our fingertips very often, whether it's technology, behavior, um, living in a, in, in a community, in a sustaining community, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a reason for optimism. Fantastic. I think it's a fascinating the point you're making about empathy. I couldn't agree more, uh, to put it mildly. And I think one always or one can very easily in the world of philosophy look to the wonderful Iris Murdoch, who is such a champion of empathy and, and highly actually has to be said critical at the time of the uh, existentialists from the point of view of... Uh, oh, really? Yeah. yeah. The, 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 the Sartrean view of the sort of primacy uh, or the obsession with the self as, at, at the expense of others, perhaps put right. it very, very crudely. Right. So uh, one of those, she always felt that uh, yeah, you, one can have that, but um, in terms of authenticity and sort of personal, whatever, integrity, but it has to be a value, she put it, I think, alongside others. Um, so just to finish off then, Thierry, so just so the listeners are entirely clear of where they can, um, A, track you down on social media etc and then also perhaps talk a bit about uh, what's coming up for you in the short to medium term future uh, yeah so uh, where can they find you and what are you up to <laughs> uh, thank you thank you sean well you can find me um on my website which is um monthlybarometer.com um that's my my, my key business um so monthly barometer in one word.com um, what I'm doing next, uh, well, what is on my immediate horizon is a summit of minds which we're going to have in, uh, in, um, in September. And uh, there is something I'm incredibly um, happy uh, about, um, which is our uh, Good for Nature Award. We have 
we we award every year a good for nature um, prize to the startup at the confluence of tech and nature based solutions uh, which is most successful innovative etc and uh, we review every year uh, about 800 companies um, we, with our partners and this is a phenomenal reason for optimism this is blossoming this is exploding it's exponential every year there are more startups always always almost always led by very young people 2025 um, designing nature based solutions to address climate change to address uh, biodiversity loss to address waste to address water scarcity and uh, i can uh, i have a lot of optimism in this capability of um, innovators entrepreneurs investors to 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 find solutions to all these problems on that note, Thierry, uh, and I say it has been so interesting talking with you, but I know you're a highly uh, busy individual. So, uh, yeah, so, so to Thierry Malloray, the uh, joint founder and managing partner at Monthly Barometer and the fantastic Summit of Minds, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Sean. Thanks for listening to the New Abnormal podcast. Just so you know, the trends and insights discussed in these podcasts link to my speeches. Check out seanpeterc.com for more info and to ongoing cultural and social research conducted by brandpositive.org. Till next time, goodbye.